The biggest Canadian news story of the year happened back in the spring when a wildfire broke out southwest of Fort McMurray, Alberta. And over the course of a few short days, the nation watched anxiously as the fire grew out of control and swept through much of the city, eventually destroying 2,400 homes and forcing the largest wildfire evacuation in Alberta's history. The fire continued to spread until early July, scorching a grand total of 1.5 million acres of forest, disrupting the lives of thousands of families and businesses, although thankfully very few were injured or killed. From a strictly human perspective, the forest fires like the one we witnessed earlier this year can be absolutely terrifying and devastating. But You might be interested to know something I learned in biology a long time ago. And that's the fact that forest fires are a necessary part of a healthy ecosystem. You see, without occasional fires, many of our forests would be unable to sustain themselves over the long term, and many trees would be unable to reproduce. Some species of pine trees, for example, require the intense heat of a forest fire to release the seeds from the cones. And scientists will tell you that forest fires play a vital role in revitalizing the watershed, Recycling nutrients, thinning out the older trees and the dead wood so the younger trees can grow and flourish. As one ecologist put it, fire is both inevitable and the ultimate contradiction. Often beautiful, terrifying, destructive, renewing, and life-giving all at the same time. It really all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? If you live in a house that's in the path of a violent, raging fire, it would be almost impossible to think of anything other than the imminent danger that fire poses to you and your property. But on the other hand, if you're an ecologist who sees the bigger picture, who understands the benefits that will result from the fire, you may seem that, see that same destructive event in a slightly different light. As we near the conclusion of our sermon series in the book of Job this morning, I want to suggest to you that the trials and tribulations you and I face in this life are a bit like forest fires in the sense that they face us with inevitable contradictions. When we're walking through a difficult circumstance in life, whether it be a relational conflict or a health challenge or an unexpected loss, it is often hard, if not impossible for us, to see past the immediate pain or to imagine that anything good or productive could possibly come out of our suffering. When you're faced with a raging fire, all you can think about is imminent danger and destruction. But at times we can look back on the trials we face in this life. We can see how those trials accomplish something good and necessary in the big scheme of things. It doesn't make the trial any less painful, but it does help us to understand and accept the trial as men and women who belong to a gracious and sovereign and loving God. We were introduced to this perspective on evil and suffering last week through the speeches of a young man named Elihu who showed us that God uses suffering and pain for a positive purpose. To get our attention. To open our ears to His instruction. This morning we are going to hear from God Himself speaking to Job out of the whirlwind, opening his eyes to the bigger picture that he could not see from his limited human vantage point. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. Listen carefully as I read from the Word of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld. Their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take Take it to its territory that you may discern the past to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place the light is distributed or where is the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the, gr the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters come hard like a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maserot in their season? Can you guide the bear with his children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a voice of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say, say here we are? Who has put wisdom in the in inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their den or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey and when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? And then chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it, answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. 
and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God this morning. You know, for many readers over the centuries, the concluding portion of the book of Job has been seen as a great disappointment. That's especially true for those who go through this book expecting Job to get an answer to all the why questions he's been asking. We come to a book like Job looking for very specific answers to the problem of evil and suffering, but are frustrated when we don't find the kind of answers that we're looking for. George Bernard Shaw, the great playwright who was also an agnostic and a sharp critic of the Christian faith, famously commented about God's speech to Job in these final chapters. If I complain that I am suffering unjustly, Shaw said, it is no answer to say, can you make a hippopotamus? I think many people over the years have agreed with Shaw's critique of the ending of Job. Although it's absolutely true, Job does not get a detailed explanation about what was happening behind the heavenly curtains. It is false to conclude that God does not answer Job or that God somehow evades the main issue. Job might not have received the answer he was hoping for. But in the final analysis, Job did receive the answer that he needed. Nothing more and nothing less. And I'm going to warn you this morning, if you are looking to God for answers to all the why questions you might be asking about evil, if you are demanding from God an explanation that will make sense of all of your suffering, you will probably end up disappointed and frustrated, perhaps even cynical like George Bernard Shaw. Although there are times in this life when God in His kindness pulls back the curtain and gives us a glimpse at the bigger picture, there are many other times when suffering will remain a mystery. We will be left with many unanswered questions. As far as I can tell from this story, Job never received the specific reason for his suffering. As we're going to discover today, Job received exactly from God what he needed. And you and I can have the same confidence in our own day whenever we are called to walk through the fires of adversity and trial. God in His sovereignty and providence does not always make sense to us, but His grace is sufficient. Last week we took some time to review Job's spiritual progression through this difficult trial, and we concluded that even though Job is not suffering because he sinned against God, Job did sin against God in his suffering. As the trial progressed with no relief in sight, as Job defends himself over and over against the unfair accusations of his three friends, Self-righteous pride begins to stir in his heart and Job begins to defend his own reputation at the expense of God's reputation. To suggest that God had turned against him and become his enemy. To suggest that God's ways in the world are fundamentally unjust and unfair. This trial awakened sinful pride in Job's heart. He began to blaspheme God with his mouth to speak vocally against God's justice and righteousness. It was, in fact, Job's sinful speech in combination with the foolishness of his friends that provoked this young man named Elihu to join the conversation and to rebuke Job and his three friends with words that were full of zeal and anger. Though Elihu sometimes verges into arrogance, we concluded last time there was a great deal of wisdom and truth in what this young man had to say to Job, both in his defense of God's character and also his contention that suffering plays a productive role in our life. 
For Elihu, suffering is not the whip of an angry, vindictive God. Rather, it is the megaphone of a loving Father who wants to get our attention so He can refine us and purify us for our own good and for His greater glory. It's the main contribution that Elihu makes to the overall message of the book in his speeches. And those speeches actually prepare the way for God to appear here in the final chapters of the book. It prepared and set the stage for a final authoritative word from the Lord. Well, God's final word to Job begins in chapter 38. The first thing we need to notice is the way in which He chooses to reveal Himself. Verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now the fact that God appears to Job and speaks to Job out of the middle of a great windstorm is significant for a couple of reasons. You remember, first of all, Job's affliction way back at the beginning of the book began with another windstorm. A violent storm that knocked down the house where his children were staying, instantly killing them all. And so the book of Job is actually framed by two storms. One storm at the beginning of the book that's followed by devastation. A second storm at the end of the book that's followed by restoration. Also, if you've been reading and studying through this book carefully, you may be aware Job speaks about a windstorm in chapter 30, verses 21 to 23. That's one of those passages where Job is boldly accusing God of injustice, where he almost seems to be daring God to take his life. You've turned cruel to me, Job says, and with the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride upon it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all the living. Job has expressed his belief that God would kill him in the same way his children died. And so it's no coincidence here, God appears to Job in a terrifying windstorm. And when God opens his mouth and begins to speak from the midst of the storm, we can imagine what Job must have been thinking. Job must have assumed that his time has come, that God's vengeance is about to be poured out on him in all of its fury. Job thinks that he's about to die at the hand of God. But in an interesting twist, God comes to Job in this storm, but not for the vindictive, destructive purpose that Job was expecting. You see, God did not appear to Job in the storm in order to destroy him, but rather to correct him, to restore him, to demonstrate his grace. And God is going to impress upon Job through this dramatic self-revelation a renewed sense of his power and majesty, but he is also going to impress upon Job the wonderful truth he is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. At this point in his journey, Job sees God as an enemy who's turned against him. He sees God as an angry executioner out for blood. In these final chapters of the book, God is going to reveal Himself to Job as a firm but loving father whose purpose is not to destroy his child, but rather to instruct his child in wisdom and to train his child in righteousness. Although the purpose of this windstorm is not to destroy Job for his sin, the image of a windstorm clearly communicates to us something about God's nature. Communicates to us, the readers, a sense of God's unbridled power and majesty. It communicates to us the reality of God's anger and wrath against sin, the power He possesses to punish our sin, to punish our rebellion to the fullest extent. 
Our God, brothers and sisters, is a consuming fire, as the book of Hebrew tells us. A fire that will eventually consume all those who refuse to bow the knee to Him in repentance and faith, but also a fire that will purify those who trust in Him. A fire that will refine all those who love Him and who long for His coming. So awesome, so powerful, so holy is our God, it is impossible for mortal man to look at Him and live. And this storm imagery we find at the end of Job in many other parts of the Bible is meant to instill in us a sincere reverence and respect for our God. It should instill in us an understanding God is the most powerful, holy being in the entire universe. He is not to be treated lightly. He is not to be trifled with. He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. Is the God whose anger and wrath burns against wickedness, against anything that would oppose or trample upon His glory. In the early chapters of this book, Job is called a man who fears God, but something has happened over the course of the trial. In the depths of his suffering, in the depths of his pain, Job begins to forget who God is and what God is like. Job begins to speak disrespectfully towards God, to treat him as a peer, as someone who's on the same moral plane as he is, as someone that Job is in the position to judge. Now Elihu has already pointed out this flaw in previous chapters, but now in the concluding portion of the book, God is going to answer Job himself, and he is going to do it in a way that will humble Job and that will renew his mind and his thinking. God's final answer to Job might seem a little bit harsh to us, but in fact, this personal appearance is God's grace. This is God's grace in stopping Job before he goes too far in his sin. This is God's grace in refining Job's character, producing wisdom in Job's life, bringing him back into a right relationship that is marked by love for God and reverence for God. God's design in these final chapters is to humble Job. And He does it by challenging him to a contest. Once in chapter 38, verse 3, and a second time in chapter 40, verse 7. In chapter 38, verse 3, God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and, make, and you make it known to Me. The image that God is using here when He tells Job to dress for action is related to a sporting contest. Job has spoken to God as though they were on the same moral plane and God is now going to call Job to account. He is challenging Job to a wrestling match. In all likelihood, God's sudden appearance here in chapter 38 is a direct response to Job's words in chapter 31 where Job says in frustration, Oh, that I had one to hear me! Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. A few short chapters ago, Job dared God to publish his sin, to give him the chance to stand trial and to vindicate himself. Job has convinced himself that he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, even to stand before God as a prince as a peer. And sadly, brothers and sisters, I think there are many religious and moral people in our world today who think that they too will one day get a chance to stand before God and vindicate themselves in this same way. To bring God down to a human level. To treat God as a peer. 
to tell God to His face what a great person they were here on earth, how many good works they accomplished in this life, how deserving they are of heaven and of eternal reward. Many people believe that if God actually exists, they'll be able to stroll into His presence like a prince and that He will be greatly impressed with their morality. Well, may I say this morning, friends, by way of reminder and warning, when we are face to face with God one day in all of His glory and holiness and splendor, we will not be strolling casually into His presence and telling Him what wonderful people we were here on earth. When we see God in all of His holiness, in all of His awesomeness and glory and splendor, the reality is we will be so overwhelmed by the weight of our sinfulness and our unworthiness, we will be flat on our faces before Him. And all of the good deeds that you and I accomplished in this life will seem like filthy, worthless rags in comparison. When we see God on the day of judgment, The only good deed that will be of any interest to us is the deed that Jesus Christ accomplished on Calvary's cross on behalf of anyone who would ever repent and believe in Him. Those who attempt on that day to stand before God clothed in their own self-righteousness will be greatly humbled, just as Job was humbled in the whirlwind. Those who stand before God in humility clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ will be exalted and comforted. They will be received by the Father for the sake of His beloved Son. For we know, says Paul in the book of Romans, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Job made the mistake of thinking he was on the same moral plane as God, and he even thought he was in a position to judge God, to evaluate the wisdom of God. That's the reason why God comes out of the gate so strong here in chapter 38. It's God's grace at work in humbling Job, in putting him in his place. As the scripture says, the Lord resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if Job is ever going to gain the wisdom he's seeking for the trial, he must continue to fear the Lord. He must grow in his reverence for the Lord. And if Job is going to fear the Lord as he should, he must learn true humility, recognizing who he is as a finite human being and being reminded of who God is as the creator of all things, sustainer of all things. So far in this book, it has been Job who's asking the questions of God. Now it's God's turn to ask a few questions of His own somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 questions first question that God asked Job is really an accusation. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? To say that another way, God is accusing Job in this verse of questioning His sovereign wisdom, even though it's patently obvious Job does not have all the facts. Job is speaking to God out of ignorance. Those of you who have raised children will probably know how this feels child who thinks he knows better than his parents. A child who thinks he could do a better job running the household if he were only given the chance. Rebellious teenager who's convinced that his parents are trying to ruin his life. Most parents experience this dynamic with their children and all of us have been in that position as children with our parents. You know, the sad truth is that very often you and I relate this way to the Father in Heaven. There are many times we think we know better than God does about how the world should operate. 
You know, sometimes we even think that we could do a better job of running things if God would just turn the controls over to us for the day and give us a chance. Got a little reminder of this this week. It didn't upset or annoy me nearly as much as it amused me. Our little Carrie is now crawling all over the house. He's 11 months old. He's opening drawers. He's touching things he shouldn't every time our back is turned for a minute. And so this past week, Leslie asked me to put up security latches on the cupboard door so that Carrie won't touch something that he shouldn't touch and accidentally hurt himself. Well, let me tell you, after I finished the work of securing all the doors, it did not take Carrie very long to recognize that his favorite activity had come to an end. He was no longer able to do what he wanted to do. And in that moment, from Carrie's perspective, I was a very mean person. I was a bad guy. I ruined his fun. You know, from my broader perspective as an adult, as a parent, I know what I did was in the best interest of my son. And he might get mad at me. He might cry a little bit next time he can't open the cupboard doors. But I know a few things about this world that Carrie doesn't know. I see a few things about this world that he cannot see. And I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, this is what it must look like to the Heavenly Father whenever we finite human beings throw temper tantrums over perceived injustices and speak rashly against His wisdom and His ways and His sovereignty. It is one thing to lament and to grieve, to ask the tough questions when we go through painful situations and the wind gets knocked out of us. It's okay for us to spend some time on the ash heap, to pour out our emotion and our pain before God, to grieve, to be honest about how we feel. It's quite another thing in those situations to shake our fist at God, to elevate our finite human understanding above His sovereign wisdom. And that's what Job has been doing throughout the second half of the book. And God is now going to put Job in His place as any loving father would do. Well, God's first accusation against Job is that he's questioned divine wisdom without having all of the facts. But there's a second accusation we find at the beginning of chapter 40, once again phrased by God as a question. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Again in verse 8, Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Not only has Job darkened God's counsel and suggested he could do a better job running the world, Job has gone farther than that. He has accused God of acting unjustly and immorally in the world. Of opposing the righteous, oppressing the righteous, and exalting and rewarding the wicked. Job has been picking a fight with God. He's been hurling accusations against God. And now it's God's turn to ask the question. The time has come for God to call Job's bluff and step in the ring. You may notice if you read through these chapters that God's wrestling match with Job goes on for two rounds. The first round happens in chapters 38 and 39. The second round happens in chapters 40 and 41. And each round in this wrestling match begins with God challenging Job to dress for action like a man. And each round ends with Job responding to God by humbling himself. Chapters 38 and 39, we see God first of all defending His sovereignty over the realm of nature. God begins His examination of of Job at the broadest level of creation, asking Job questions about the origin of the creation, about the inner workings of the natural world. 
Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or how about this one, Job? Who shut in the sea with doors and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you, Job, entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Have you seen the storehouses of of hail? And Job, tell me if you don't mind, can you send forth lightning? You see what's happening here? God is pummeling Job with question after question. And of course, the only answer Job can give in each and every case is, no God, I wasn't there. Or no God, I don't have a clue about that. Job is being forced by God to humble himself. To confess his own ignorance and finitude. And after God interrogates Job for a while about creation and the cosmos, he switches the subject slightly in verse 39 and begins to ask some questions about the animal kingdom, presumably a subject that Job would know more about. Once again, Job is totally stumped. He can't answer a single question. You know what I find interesting about God's questioning of Job in chapters 38 and 39? He brings up issues that simply did not make sense to human beings living in Job's culture and context. For example, in chapter 38, verses 25 to 27, God asked Job why he would cause rain to fall in the desert where no human being lives. In chapter 39, verse 13 to 18, God brings up a rather odd subject. The subject of the ostrich. It's a bird that appears to be stupid. A bird that appears to be negligent in the way it treats its young. A bird that lacks wisdom. Why would God make an animal like that? How does the ostrich fit into God's grand design? That's the question he's asking Job. Now you and I might not care too much about ostriches here in North America, but most of us have probably wondered at some point along the line why it is that God created black flies. Why God created mosquitoes. You see, from a strictly human perspective, there are many things about the natural world that don't make sense to us. Many creatures, many natural processes that mystify us as to their purpose. But here's the point we need to understand. All of these things make perfect sense to God. Because God sees the bigger picture that we don't see. We might not understand why God made ostriches. God does. We might not understand why God made mosquitoes and black flies. God does. God knows all kinds of things that you and I don't know. God knows all kinds of things even the most intelligent scientists on planet earth does not know or understand. As God once said through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In the first round of this wrestling match, God reveals His total sovereignty and wisdom over the natural realm, pointing Job towards the creation and the animal kingdom. But in the second round, God's purpose is to show Job He is completely sovereign and wise in His moral governance of the universe. Chapters 40 and 41 focus our attention on two unique and rather intriguing creatures didn't read this text earlier on, but I would encourage you to read these chapters later this afternoon. 
The chapters speak about a large and powerful land animal named Behemoth and a dangerous sea creature named Leviathan. I don't know about you, I've always been intrigued by these two descriptions in the book of Job. I've always wondered what these two animals might possibly be. A number of scholars over the years have argued Behemoth is a hippopotamus and Leviathan is a crocodile. But a closer look at the description given in the text doesn't seem to fit either one of those animals very well. Behemoth, we're told by the Lord, has a tail like a cedar tree and Leviathan apparently breathes out fire and smoke. And so if God is really speaking here about a hippo and a crocodile, it's pretty clear these descriptions are embellished and exaggerated, something that is possible in prophetic or in poetic literature, but not very likely in my opinion. Second possibility that's been put forward, perhaps the most intriguing one, is that Behemoth and Leviathan are ancient creatures that were still living during the time of Job, but have since gone extinct. That what we have here is a biblical description of dinosaurs that were roaming the earth before Noah's flood. And the third possibility that's held by a good number of Bible scholars is that these two creatures are mythological inventions. That they didn't really exist in real life. Not in Job's life and not in ours. Well, it's certainly true that Leviathan appears in the mythology of the ancient Near East. The biblical text in front of us indicates strongly these two creatures were indeed part of God's creation. For example, in chapter 40, verse 15, God says, Behold, behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. And so it seems to me Leviathan and behemoth are most likely ancient animals that have since gone extinct. But that being said, I also believe here that God is using these ancient creatures in a symbolic way, in a way that would resonate with the mythology of Job's world and culture. The ancient culture Job inhabited, the sea was believed to be a place of chaos and danger, and a sea creature like Leviathan would have been bound up in all that imagery of fear and of chaos. For Job, Leviathan was a mysterious creature who lived in the chaotic realm of the sea where no man would dare to go. And Job would have associated Leviathan with the forces of evil, the forces of chaos. Little wonder then that elsewhere Scripture portrays Satan himself as a dragon and a beast that comes out of the sea. Perhaps an allusion to this ancient monster Leviathan mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Behemoth and Leviathan are being used by God in these final speeches to represent forces of chaos and evil that exist in the world. Forces that are far beyond man's ability to control. And what God is really doing here in these chapters is challenging Job to take control of the moral order of the universe. To take on Behemoth. To take on Leviathan. To see how well he does in restraining them. To see how capable he is of holding back the forces of chaos and evil that continuously threaten God's good creation. And of course, the result of all this questioning, all this sparring with God, is that Job is humbled. Job is put in his place once again. The first round of the wrestling match reveals Job's lack of knowledge. The second round reveals his lack of power. Job is ignorant when it comes to God's ways in the world. Job is powerless when it comes to the issue of moral governance and the ability to restrain evil and chaos. 
Brothers and sisters, there is an important lesson here in God's final speech, not only for this ancient man named Job, but for all of us whenever we're called to endure a difficult trial. Whenever we suffer something difficult in this life, it's crucial for us to remember our perspective as human beings is very limited. Our knowledge about the world is finite. And try as we may, it's often impossible for us to see the big picture. It's often impossible for us to understand why God in His wisdom and providence allows certain things to happen. We look, for example, this week at the horrific images of suffering that is happening right now in Aleppo, Syria. And in our humanity, we wonder, why does God not intervene? Why doesn't He stop the violence? Why doesn't He stop the slaughter? Why doesn't He use His power to bring immediate justice? These are the kinds of questions we naturally ask when we turn on the news, when we're faced with horrific examples of evil in the world and even in our own lives. As human beings, we desperately want to make sense of it. We want to understand how it can be. Why it can be. What the book of Job teaches us is that even when we don't understand the reasons for suffering and evil in the world, God does. Even when we can't wrap our minds around it, God can. This book reminds us, trusting God's wisdom and sovereignty, resting in His gracious character, is far more important than figuring out the specific reasons for suffering, which are often very obscure, shrouded in mystery. You know, friends, from one perspective, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ appears to be a tragedy with no redeeming quality. When the Lord Jesus was brutally flogged and nailed to a Roman cross, a travesty of justice was committed. An innocent man died in the most horrific and shameful way imaginable. And on that terrible Friday afternoon, many people in Jerusalem must have wondered how a God of love and justice could possibly allow such evil to occur, how God could allow such a wonderful, loving man as Jesus to suffer as He did. From one perspective, the suffering, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ seems completely senseless and unjust. But in the case of the Lord Jesus, God the Father has allowed us to peek behind the curtain and to see that there was a far bigger picture and a far bigger plan. God allowed us to understand Jesus is the Lamb crucified before the foundation of the world, that His death on the cross accomplished something unspeakably wonderful, unspeakably glorious. It accomplished our eternal salvation, the magnification of God's mercy and grace. Don't be deceived by appearances, brothers and sisters. You and I might not always understand why God allows evil and suffering to invade His creation, to invade our lives. God always has a plan. God always has a purpose. And God's desire for our lives as Christian men and women is that we would trust in His love, in His grace, in His providence, rather than bringing foolish accusations against the Almighty or thinking in our pride that we could do a better job of running the world. Our sovereign God knows what He's doing and He is worthy of our trust. That is the takeaway point from this morning's text. I want to leave you this morning with the words of an 18th century hymn written by William Cowper. A man whose life was very interesting. A man who knew what it meant to suffer. The hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it beautifully summarizes the truths we've been considering this morning from God's holy 
and inspired word. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. Amen.